Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Happy October. Let's read the Word of God together in Romans chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 14 down to the end of the chapter. So let's read those verses together. Please hear the word of the living God. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you, were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and ha have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. As you'll recall from last Lord's Day, um, Romans chapter 6 marks a turning point in the book of Romans. Up to this point, Paul has been laying the uh, foundation of the gospel itself. The, the gospel is the foundation of everything that Christianity is all about. Without the gospel, there is no Christianity. And uh, it's interesting that through the first five chapters, the Apostle Paul has given no commands, no exhortations. And uh, beginning with chapter six, there's going to be quite a few. And uh, what he begins chapter 6 with is, is a question that reflects um, a critique of his own ministry. He says in verse 1 of Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And what we're going to do this morning is continue on with Paul's um, defense of his gospel in light of this charge. But before we do that, I'd like you to think with me. So here Paul is defending himself against this unwarranted charge, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
Wouldn't it have been easier for the Apostle Paul? Wouldn't he have avoided a whole bunch of headaches if he would have written the letter of Romans, the book of Romans, differently? If instead of spending five chapters painstakingly laying out the doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone apart from our works, what if he just began Romans with all of the different exhortations and commands that he's going to end up writing anyway in the book of Romans? In other words, wouldn't it have been easier if the book of Romans was reorganized so the last part of the book was the first and the first part of the book was the last? A lot of people live their Christian lives that way. There was a pastor friend of mine that I had lunch with sort of recently, and I, I won't tell you if this friend was in Ridgecrest or not. Maybe he was. Maybe he was from another city or another state. And this pastor was lamenting to me, um, I believe that there were some members of his church that had left his church and gone to a, a, another church in town that was the in thing. There's lots going on, lots of activity, uh, lots of engagement in the community, and lots of youth from his church were attending the youth group from this particular church. And so my pastor friend thought he'd, he'd check it out. So he goes to their website and um, listened to like three or four sermons just to, just to see. You know, what is, what's so happening about this particular church? And he said, uh, it's not that I heard anything wrong, but it really struck me that in these three or four messages, I never heard the gospel. That's what this pastor friend said to me and even asked me, do you think I'm being picky? <laughs> but you see, this is where a lot of churchgoers are. This is where a lot of so-called Christianity is in America. It's basically a Christless Christianity. They, they want to hear all of the how-tos. They, they want to know how to be salt on the earth and basically be a big, giant social program in their community, but they don't talk about the gospel and by the way, if you never hear the gospel, then maybe you're ignorant of, of the gospel. But that's not the Christianity of the Bible. That's not the Christianity of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was all about good works, for sure. Good works in the Christian life. But it all begins with and is grounded in, rooted in the gospel. If we neglect the gospel, then we're going to fall into the ditch of a Christless Christianity, a form of legalism. But by the same token, if all we ever do is talk about the, the grace of God in justif justifying us by faith apart from our works, and that's all we ever talk about, and we don't talk about the fruit from that, then we're going to fall in the other ditch of easy believism or antinomianism. And that's, um, that's why it's important that all of the words, all of the chapters in the book of Romans are there 
in the order in which the Holy Spirit moved Paul to write them. So we're uh, talking about what practical Christianity looks like. We're talking about um, what justifying faith in Jesus looks like in practical life. Or theologically, we're talking about sanctification now. Um, for a long time, we've been talking about justification, how sinners can be made right in the sight of God. Now we're talking about sanctification, how justified sinners can grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. So that's what we're doing. That's what the Apostle Paul is writing about in these verses that we're looking at. And uh, as Paul writes about this fuller, balanced, big picture of Christianity, he uses the imagery of slavery, a bad word in our culture today, slavery, but to the Apostle Paul, it was a very fitting, appropriate, illustrative image to use to be able to get across what Christianity is like. So, point number one in your outline it's in verse 14, and that is that the liberating power of grace, the liberating power of grace. So once again, in verse 14, Paul wrote, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And that was really the conclusion of his argument in verses 1 through 13 but it also serves as a nice transition into verses 15 to the end of the verse. Sin will have no dominion over you. Let's be clear, Paul is not saying, don't let sin have dominion over you, although that could be said. Instead, this is not a command, it's, uh, not in imperative. This is a statement of fact, a statement of spiritual reality. If you are a Christian, if you have true, justifying, saving faith in Jesus Christ, then sin will have no dominion over you. That doesn't mean that there will not be any sin in your life. No, he says, sin will have no dominion over you. In other words, sin will no longer be your controlling master. Sin will no longer be the dominating power in your life. It will still be there, yes. And he's gonna talk more about that in Romans chapter seven, but it will no longer be your master. It will no longer have dominion over you. You will no longer be its slave. And notice the reason for that. Since you are not under law, but under grace. We need to talk about this phrase. You are not under law, but under grace. In, in my Christian experience, there's a been a lot of confusion that I have uh, heard about these words. Um, and so what we're going to do is contrast under law with under grace. 
Because if we look at the law of God, the law of Moses in the Old Testament, there's grace there. And as you look at grace in the New Testament, there's law there. But we're going to separate them for the purpose of comparing them, con contrasting them. So under law, what does Paul mean there when he says, since you are not under law? In a nutshell, Paul means here, under the reign of law. He means under obligation to keep God's law. And he is thinking primarily about the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. The, the constitution of the law of Moses was the Ten Commandments. But then there were all kinds of peculiar laws that applied to the Jews in the land of Palestine, in the theocracy of Israel, that were applications of the moral law. And then there were various ceremonial laws that prefigured the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what Paul is particularly thinking about is um, the, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, the, the do's and the don'ts of the law. And what we want to make uh, be clear about is that under the law does not mean just under obligation to keep God's law. Under grace, conversely, does not mean under no law. That's what, have you ever heard that? You, you talk about a, a commandment, something that we must do as Christians. And I've heard people say, well, there's nothing that we must do because we're not under law, we're under grace. And I just want to set the record straight, that's not it. Under law does not mean simply under obligation to keep God's law so that under grace means under no law whatsoever. Under no law is the ancient heresy of antinomianism. Uh, namos is the Greek word for law, and anti means uh, against or opposed to, and so an antinomian is basically someone who's opposed to the law or against the law, and folks who believed that have always been around uh, within the church. And that's not the teaching of the Bible. How do we know that? Do you know that in the New Testament, there are about 1,050 commands? 1,050 commands. Do you know how I know that? Because I, I sat down and counted every single one. No, I, I did I, I did whatever every lazy American does. I Googled it. <laughs> so assuming that's true, there's 1,050 commands in the New Testament. And let me just direct your attention to a couple of Bible passages. Look backwards to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, the smallest strokes in the Greek alphabet, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now listen to verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So briefly, Jesus says that the law of God is fulfilled in his kingdom by him in such a way that the law is not abrogated. It's not just completely done away with. It's not canceled out. There remain for those in his kingdom commandments to keep. Now, to be sure, these commandments flow from a deeper, more profound righteousness than the self-righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees exemplified. We're not talking about the outward appearance. We're not talking about hypocrisy. We're not talking about doing things in order to look good in front of other people. We're not talking about things that uh, make us seem holier than thou in our own estimation so that we can look down our noses at others. That was the scribes and the Pharisees. No, we're talking about a righteousness that exceeds that a righteousness that is based on the righteousness of God. Remember, that's what we received as a gift through faith in justification. And then it flows from our new relationship with God. But once again, there are commandments that apply to Christians. John, in 1 John 5, 3, put it this way. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Then he goes on to add, and his commandments are not burdensome. So that's the first point of contrast under law, under grace. We're we're basically pointing out what, what this does not mean. And then moving on, under law means under obligation, but without the power to keep the law. Under obligation, but without the power to keep the law. Remember what we saw in Romans chapter 3, back in Romans. Romans chapter 3. In verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world, pause there for a minute, notice every mouth and the whole world are under the law. 
every, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So God's law leads to the condemnation, the universal guilt of the entire world. Why is that? Verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's all the law can do. The law can make you aware of sin. It points out what is right, what is not right. It points out what is forbidden and what is required. But it can't empower you to keep it. All it can do is point out your sin. And in verse 19, all it can do is lead to your condemnation. It cannot produce holiness. And then if you look forward to Romans chapter 8, we're going to see this soon. Romans chapter 8 verses 2 through 4. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law could not empower you to obey it. And then Paul goes on, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So why did Jesus come into the world in order to save us from sin's penalty as well as from sin's power. The law itself could never do this. So in contrast to the law, to being under law, under grace means saved by grace from the penalty and enslaving power of sin. What's the result of being under law? Condemnation, slavery, and death. And we've already seen that in even the verses we looked at this morning. And what's the result of being under grace? Justification, freedom, and life. So the liberating power of grace. This is why... Sin will have no dominion over you as a believer. All right, moving on then. Number two in your outline. You have to help me out up there, Brother Ron. Could you help me with the slides? Either we've got bad batteries or there's something vicious and demonic going on. Or both. Thank you. All right, notice verses 15 through 20. Here's another question. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Interesting. There's, it's a similar question to verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And he answers both both forms, basically of the same question, 
in the same way. By no means, absolutely not. And here's his explanation in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So here's a spiritual reality that Paul is appealing to here. It is part of our spiritual nature that has been affected by the fall and that God redeems by grace. And that is that we're prone to slavery. Either we're going to be sin, uh, a slave of sin, which leads to death, he says in verse 16, or we're going to be a slave to God, put another way, a slave of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Those are the two choices. There's no neutral ground. There's no third rail or alternative. There's no, well, I don't want to be a slave of sin. I also don't feel like being a slave to God, so I'm just going to be a slave of neutrality. It's a myth. It's an illusion. It's a delusion. There is no such thing. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. And if we make the choice to sin, willingly obey sin, then Paul says we're in effect acting out being slaves of sin. And I would just remind you of the words of Jesus. We saw these words last time. John chapter 8 and verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's the teaching of Jesus. So what is it that sets us free? What, what is it that emancipates us? What is the Christian's emancipation proclamation? Notice verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, and make no mistake about it, before Christ you were, before Christ I was a slave of sin, Thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That's what set us free. Well, what is that? The standard of teaching to which you were committed. That's Paul's way of describing the gospel. It is the gospel that sets us free. It's the truth, the good news about the, the saving work of Jesus Christ, his work upon the cross, his victorious resurrection from the dead. That is the gospel that sets us free. And 
notice how he describes the gospel. It's the standard of teaching to which you were committed. The gospel is a doctrine. Lots of people today in Christendom don't like doctrine. They want to come to church. They don't want to use their minds. They want to put their thinking into cruise control. They want to be entertained. They want to be hyped up into an emotional frenzy. But don't ask them to think. But the gospel itself that saves us is a standard of teaching. It is a doctrine. And have you ever heard that phrase, that slogan, really? Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Have you ever heard that? Am I the only one? You've never heard that? Thank you. I just want to make sure. Well, I just want you to know that that might be a catchy slogan, but it's anti-Bible. It's anti-biblical. In a sense, anti-gospel. You, you cannot preach the gospel without using words because the gospel itself is a pattern of sound words. It's a standard of teaching. And we commit ourselves to that. When we believe the gospel, it is a commitment to a truth. It's a commitment to a doctrine. And what's the application in our lives? Notice verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Paul is saying, because you have been saved by the gospel, because Jesus Christ is now your Lord, then instead of living the way you used to live, which was slavery to sin, which was obeying your thirst, doing whatever your, your flesh dictated, basically, following your feelings, following your, your impulses. Instead of living in slavery to that master, now present your members as slaves to a new master, Jesus Christ. our holy Lord, and therefore to righteousness leading to sanctification. This is the first time now in the book of Romans that Paul brings up our sanctification. So what is sanctification? Funny you should ask that. That's question 35 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is sanctification? And here's the answer. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. The textbook definition of sanctification. 
Let me give you a couple of uh, biblical data points. Let's look forward in Romans again. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Romans 8 and verse 29. Paul writes there, for those whom he foreknew. And by the way, don't confuse God's foreknowledge with what we would imagine as uh, prescience. Simply knowing ahead of time whatever takes place. The, The God of the Bible doesn't just know passively what's going to happen. The God of the Bible is the one who declares the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, saying, my counsel shall stand. So when he foreknows, he knows what's going to happen because he's declared, he has appointed, he has foreordained what's going to happen. But in any event, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Notice the goal of predestination. The goal of foreknowing us, of setting his love on us before time began. The goal of predestinating us the goal of him calling us, justifying us, saving us, is not just so that we would be forgiven. No, the goal of God's grand drama of redemption in our lives is that we would be conformed to the image of his son, that we would become more and more like Jesus. Look in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 22 and uh, through 24. Ephesians 4 starting in verse 22. We are to put off your old self, your old sinful nature, the old man. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And our sinful desires are deceitful. They they tell us this is the way to happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction. Do what you feel like. That's deceitful. Because the wages of sin is death, these things lead to eternal destruction. And and even before that, we know that sin doesn't ultimately satisfy. It's like saying, what's for dinner? And your mom gives you a Hershey's bar. It it, it tastes good. It's sweet to the taste for a very short period of time. And then after you come down from your sugar high, you find that you're still hungry and maybe even have the shakes. But in any event, so we're to put off the old self, uh, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and we are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness 
and holiness. It's very interesting how Paul describes the, the purpose of our salvation, the end of our salvation. It's rooted in creation. Remember, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, both of them. And they fell into sin. And so that image of God in man became corrupted and defiled and vandalized. And then what does God do in redemption? But he, he saves sinners by his, his grace. He fills them with the Holy Spirit. And then he begins the process of renewing the, the likeness or image of God in true righteousness and holiness within them. And by the way, what's one of the names of Jesus or one of the descriptions of Jesus in the New Testament? He's the second Adam. So you connect Romans 8.29 and Ephesians 4.24, we're being we're, we're being made into the, uh, we're being conformed into, into the image of Christ, and here we're being created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Jesus himself is the standard. He's, he's the ultimate. So we're being conformed into the likeness of Christ. We're being created after the, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, just like Jesus. This is sanctification. That's the whole point. And Paul says that when we go against our sinful nature and instead uh, present our members as uh, slaves to righteousness, that leads to sanctification instead of death. And then he concludes that thought in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. And this is sarcasm on the part of the Apostle Paul. It, it's, it's irony. Because before we were saved, when we were obeying our master, sin, we thought we were free. And maybe we even heard the message of the gospel, the claims of Jesus Christ, that he's king of kings and lord of lords, and he calls sinners to follow him. And we may have thought when we heard that, well, I don't want to follow Jesus. I like my freedom. And Paul says, we were deceived when we thought that. We may have thought that we were free, but we, really the only thing that we were free in regard to was righteousness itself. And now that Christ has set us free, now we are truly free. We are free indeed. And now we are free to pursue righteousness, empowered by Christ himself. Then Paul goes on to describe two kinds of fruit and two end results. Verses 21 through 23. Notice verse 21. But what fruit were you, were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. 
And I'm assuming that you're like me. When, when you think back to your former life, BC, before Christ, and, and you think of some of the sins that still haunt you, you, you know, thank God, you know that God has forgiven you because Jesus Christ took your place on Calvary's cross and God punished Jesus instead of you for that sin. And he has justified you. He's declared you righteous in his sight because of the very righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. But still, you think to your past, and it's not that you're weighed down with condemnation, but you're ashamed. I'm that way. I'm ashamed of a lot of things that I've done in my BC days. And Paul says why we should be ashamed of those things. For the end of those things is death, eternal separation from God. Our sin always separates us from God. And if that's the way that we live and we've never been redeemed, we've never been set free from slavery to sin, then that's still the end of those things. Death is worse than being ashamed. And uh, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 32, Paul said this, For though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And in that case, it's all that list of sins that Paul enumerates. And you'll notice he says there in Romans 1.32 that those who practice such things deserve to die. Not at the hands of other people. This is not license to stone people to death. But this is before God. Because as we're going to see, the wages of sin is death. And in Romans chapter 8 and verse 6, Paul writes, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit on the spirit is life and peace. Have you ever known anybody that maybe recovered from, from lung cancer? And I know that everyone afflicted by lung cancer is not necessarily a smoker. There, there are lots of non-smokers who get afflicted by lung cancer. But we also know that a decent percentage of people who are habitual smokers suffer from lung cancer. Have you ever known someone, a smoker, who went through lung cancer, maybe had to have parts of their lungs removed, maybe they had to have a hole here into their trachea, and if you could picture somebody who suffered so much from lung cancer caused by smoking, and then they smoke after that, it's just gross. It's hard to even look at that because you think, man, oh man, you, you just got delivered from such a horrible fate, and now you're going to smoke again? But Paul says that is a mild picture of what it's like for Christians to sin. 
When we sin, when we present our members to sin, we're worse than the person who once smoked and went through all of that and now they're smoking again. We're worse than that because we're presenting our members to sin and the end of those things is death, eternal death. But there is more good news. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That's a very important connection. It leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. A lot of people who go to church have the mistaken idea that the eternal life that Jesus promises in uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A lot of people think, oh, I'm looking forward to eternal life, but in the meantime, I'm gonna live my life my way, and what that really means is I'm going to sin my brains out. I'm going to present my members to sin, to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. And in the end, I'm going to have eternal life because I believe in Jesus. And if you know me, you know that that's my testimony. That's where I came from. But... Paul says that's not the eternal life that Jesus gives. Jesus gives eternal life that is connected to sanctification. Jesus delivers us from the penalty of sin as well as the pollution of sin. Jesus justifies, God justifies us, but he also sanctifies us. He forgives us and he also makes us holy even as Jesus is holy. And then here's the exclamation point, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. So don't play with it. Don't mess around with it. Don't flirt with it. Don't see how close you can get to it without ending up in hell. I mean, that's really what Paul is saying. Remember that Jesus said that prior to our conversion, we were on the way that leads to destruction. Matthew 7 and verse 13. Why would you want to jump on that way from time to time? Why would you want to put your foot there or your toes there and play chicken with your, your soul? The wages of sin is death, but in stark contrast to that, the free gift of God. This is the result of God, of what God does and gives. It's not what we do or deserve or earn. It's the free gift of God. That's the meaning of grace. God gives eternal life 
Not in being a good person, not in going to church, not in simply believing in an afterlife, but specifically and personally in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter said that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord and nowhere else. And if you're not a Christian, our invitation to you is to come to this Jesus who saves from sin. Come to this Jesus and receive a full and complete pardon that is accepted by the very justice of God. Come to this Jesus who sanctifies, who will give you the power to overcome slavery to sin and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you that you are a gracious and merciful and pardoning and sanctifying God. We pray that you would save souls even today and Lord, sanctify your people. We confess to you that we, we should be and we want to be more holy and Christ-like than we are. Help us, Lord, to commit ourselves to pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.